Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love Love at at First first listen. Listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a new guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. Pleasure to have Don and Matthews on the show today, co-author with Joanne Foster of Beyond Intelligence, Secrets for Raising Happily Productive Kids. Don, I just want to say thank you so much for being on my show today. You've been a huge influence on my work for, for many years. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Um, I wanted to ask you, Donna, what is a happily productive kid? Uh, it's somebody who's engaged in doing something that he or she thinks is valuable and is moving in the, in the flow space, what Chet Mahai would have called the flow space. So somebody who's learning and growing and expanding and extending their areas of competence. Oh, that's really interesting. So, um, you really do tie this this idea of um, flow, which uh, has to do with this sort of optimal zone of challenge, right? So you're very well matched to the task at hand with being a happily productive kid. Well, that's that's wonderful. That's certainly not um, our predominant uh, culture in in schools, is it, or what we value? Yeah, for sure. I think in, I think that is changing. You know, my personal observation is that. Um, schools are increasingly aware of the importance of engaging kids in the learning process. Yeah, and um, and uh, do you think that schools uh, really are of engaging the kids in a way that is optimally challenging to them? Well, no. I mean, no. I mean, some schools are obviously, mostly not. But I think increasingly, educators and parents are aware of these concepts 
so I'm optimistic that sort of with growing awareness, you know, there is increasing pressure on, on parents and on schools to make sure that kids are enjoying their learning and, and engaged in it and challenged by it so that they're learning in ways that the kids themselves find valuable. So the title of your book is called Beyond Intelligence. And in order to go beyond that, I thought we would start with what is intelligence? Okay, and as you know, there are a million definitions of what intelligence is. And I think there's a lot of interesting work that's been done on this. It's, it's very contentious. The sort of functional definition that Joanne Foster and I are using is that intelligence is the ability to understand complex ideas, to adapt effectively to the environment, to overcome obstacles, engage meaningfully in various forms of reasoning, and to learn from experience. When we talk about how it, it develops incrementally and varies across time and situations and domains. Wow, that is a really, it seems like a, like a comprehensive definition of intelligence that, that gives people a lot of opportunities to display this thing that we call intelligence. It sounds like you're not tying it necessarily to the kinds of skills measured by Q tests. Is that right? For sure. I mean, in fact, that's certainly one of my big motivators is that I see the IQ test as so limited. It, it provides interesting information for people when they're kids who are having problems learning, but it's so limited. Um, the, what, what we're working on is something a lot more inclusive with the notion that all children can develop their intelligence. Intelligence is something that does develop over time with opportunities to learn, and it's accessible to everybody. So people are a lot less limited than they usually believe they are. Okay, so at any given moment in time, um, would you say that there are people who differ in their intelligence levels, even if everyone's capable of developing their intelligence? Yeah, for sure. I mean, people vary in the extent to which they're able to reason, for example, or demonstrate mastery of a certain domain. Now, I think that we have a lot more capacity to develop those abilities than we usually are aware. So, so there are fewer limitations on that than people often think. It's not a fixed thing. However, at any given point in time, one person will have developed their musical intelligence, say, farther than somebody else. Okay, so you um, you definitely uh, view, uh, it sounds like you're putting uh, various things in in the label of intelligence. So um, you, do you, would you include like musical competency as a form of intelligence? Well, that would be a foundation. You need a certain level of competence in the domain. You know, like Howard Gardner's perspective, the multiple intelligence. So you need some kind of competence in the, the area. Um, but then you need to do something with it. So there is the, the sort of the understanding the complexity of ideas. So pulling ideas together. So you start with the competence, but then there's what you do with that competence. How do you adapt to challenges as they come along? Uh, what do you do about obstacles? I think that's all part of what intelligence is. 
Wow, that's so. That's such a. Um, it, 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 I think it's going to give a be very refreshing to a lot of people, uh, a lot of parents, you know, and and uh, to hear that 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 broadened definition of intelligence. So, if a student scores high on an IQ test, you um, you do think that's an indicator of, of high intelligence. It is an indication of something, a high intelligence, at least in the capacities that the IQ test tests. So, yes, an IQ test absolutely measures, for example, I think it measures linguistic reasoning pretty well. So, how, you know, it's a vocabulary of the test. That's a really important dimension of the ability to reason in the language domain. So, a high IQ score tells you that a person has developed that particular capacity or intelligence pretty well. Right. And But you're saying that there are many, many ways that if someone scores low on an IQ test, that they could still be develop their intelligence, even if that IQ score doesn't budge. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like the, so, so as you said a minute ago, a high IQ does indicate a high level of intelligence of a certain kind of intelligence. However, a less than high IQ score could mean a child who doesn't test well for one reason or another. Some anxiety in the test situation, some lack of opportunity to have learned certain dimensions of test taking skills. Um, it could be an illness on a certain day. You know, there's a whole lot of reasons not to do well on a, an IQ test. The only way you can do well, unless you're, you're cheating, you know, unless you've been prepped for it, and that does happen. Um, but if that hasn't happened, uh, you know, what it does mean is that you're highly capable in those capacities that the IQ test tests. Right. So that's a, it's a really, uh, yeah, I really like this perspective that you have. And in this book, you go through lots of uh, myths of intelligence and even talk about some dangerous ideas. You, yeah. There's one idea you said you refer to in the book as the most dangerous idea. Um, do you could you uh, do you remember what that was? Uh, it's probably about um, potential, limiting potential, like the no. Is it something else? No, no, that's exactly right. No, that's exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you remember you remember your book well. Um, yeah, that some kids are destined for success because of their high yeah. IQ. Well, others have limited potential. This idea, you know, this notion of yeah. potential is something that I'm fascinated with as well. And I've tried to think through what the word potential really means and um, yeah. if we ever can identify that. Um, what, what are your thoughts on potential and, and why you think that's a dangerous idea? Yeah, I, I really think that, and I've seen this in practice so often, where teachers and parents think, and it works on the high end as well as the low end to limit kids' abilities and to push them away from higher level achievement. So when people say to a kid, oh, you know, you could do a lot better than that. Your potential is to greatness. There's some terrible pressure on that kid and they, they are pushed into what Carol Dweck calls the fixed mindset. So to talk about kids as having high potential is is interestingly and somewhat counterintuitively very limiting. So it, it moves them towards the fixed mindset where they're they're less likely to do risky uh, intellectual things to take on high level challenges. 
And then on the other side of it, it's a bit more obvious or intuitive. When you tell a kid they don't have the potential, then they typically live down to your estimation. And that obviously is, is very sad and limiting too. Now, of course, some kids take that as a, a challenge and, uh, and do very well with it, as I think your story, uh, illustrates, where the being told you have limited potential leads you to work really hard to develop. So, but that's rare. That is less common. I've seen it a lot more damaging to children than, than useful. Right, 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 right. Uh, you're, you've worked a lot in the, uh, in the field of talent development and you've, uh, edited some books on this topic that, which, which have very much influenced me. Um, the, I, I'm just trying to think through, you know, why is it called, why do you guys call it talent development as opposed to just like human development? Like, uh-huh. you know? Yeah. I mean, I think where this comes from, the, the concept of talent development comes sort of one of the strands at any rate is a push back against use of the word gifted mm-hmm. yeah. and an attempt to move away from something that is innate and fixed. Like we tend to think of somebody who's gifted as they were given some gift at birth of a higher level of potential to succeed. And so there's some innate and fixed quality there. Whereas talent development, the, the concept, the words, are all the emphasis is on the development of human abilities. So it's it's much more the the doing than the being. Yeah, I, and that is a big uh, debate in the in the field of gifted education is is giftedness and talent what you do or who you are. Exactly. And you do you do tend to focus on the what you do aspect more and you're that's that's reflected very much in your theory of intelligence and uh, as very much uh something that's operating out there in in the real world in in an effective um adaptive manner not just necessarily um the essence of your being that's you know captured by an iq test that's very evident in your book and um yeah i can i can see i can see why you would uh you know refer to this talent development and talk about development uh, you know, and and you'd also admit though that there are things that we can develop even if we're not talented in those things. That's that that's the thing that I that I want to try to understand as well. Because you know, you have a talent development model, but what if you're a kid who just has a passion for something and not the talent for it? Um, well, would yes, you want to yes. cut them out of the talent development program? Yeah, no. And you see, I would take it the opposite direction. That I see talent as something that develops. I don't see it as innate. I don't. See. Yeah, I, I re- and it's interesting because it's obviously very contentious. And in the book that I did with Rena Sabotnik and Francis Horowitz, the development of talent and giftedness. I love that book, by the way. Oh, yeah. thank you. Thank yeah. you. I'm really proud of that book. Yeah. Um, but you know, we we had a lot of discussions among ourselves about about, you know, how much, if any, talent is innate. Are some people just born more musical, for example? Right. And, you know, in the end, we agreed to disagree on that. Um, and I certainly, I have enormous respect for both of my co-authors on that book. Um, you know, they're both 
amazing human beings with huge credentials in this area. Um, uh, Francis and I were more of support, I think, on this. And Rita has a lot more experience in the musical talent area and feels that, or felt at that time as we were working on that book, that there are some important musicality dimensions. And she may be right. You know, this is something that I'm not sure about. Um, but certainly for sure, and all three of us working on this book um, feel very strongly about this, there are a lot of dimensions that do develop that aren't innate at all, but that require opportunities to learn. And combined with the passionate interest, you know, you talked about the passion for something. I don't think any of us, Francis Horowitz, Rita Savathis, or I, would disagree that somebody with a great passion for something is liable to go farther than somebody who shows up with more early level ability but less passion or engagement. So the engagement factor is huge. And of course, one of the big interesting questions is where does that come from? And how much of that might be innate? And I think there are temperament differences across kids. And I'm certainly willing to concede that temperament factors can be innate. I mean, we have some pretty solid evidence about that. Absolutely. Uh, you know, in, in my book, Ungifted, I define uh, talent as a, having a passion and proclivity to master the rules of a domain. And I kind of yeah. see passion as a fundamental aspect of intelligence and um, talent, you know, is, uh, I like that. I like that perspective a lot. Yeah. So you, uh, I thought we could for the rest of the scenario. Can, can we go through some of these uh, myths that um, a lot of people have, and, and maybe you can you can help dispel them for me, or dispel so, uh, them for listeners. Um, sure. I'm just going to read various statements to you, and can you tell me if they're true or false? Sure. Okay. By the time a child is three years old, his intelligence level is set for life. Yeah, no, absolutely not. Um, I mean, right. you know, all this work that's being done on neuroplasticity, the way the brain develops, we know for sure that the brain can keep on developing across the lifespan. Even I, at my great age, <laughs> I'm old, even I can continue to develop my intelligence if I keep on thinking and working and, and uh, challenging myself. Sure. Uh, and right, and you already uh, addressed a lot of that in uh, some earlier comments you said in this interview about uh, how you really do think anyone can develop their intelligence to a substantial degree. Yeah, and I mean the three years old is you know we chose that in, in this myth because of course those first three years of life from zero to three are hugely important in building the brain. So. I'm not going to dispute the value, the importance of the zero to three. Um, however, at the age of three, a child is still developing his intelligence, and there's lots more room for growth across the lifespan. Absolutely, and that, of course, gives uh, gives hope to lots of people. I uh, I think gave, I wish that you know I knew you when I was a kid. Uh -huh. <laughs> I wish I read your book. Yeah. Me too, you know, because I, I am an advocate for kids like you who, you know, like you were, as I know you through your book, 
ungifted and to other work that a child whose abilities didn't show up initially in an IQ test, but who clearly had all kinds of strengths that needed to be affirmed and, and uh, supported. Yeah, I really do like a, a very strengths-based approach to, yeah. uh, to to talent development as opposed to just you know focusing on uh, yeah. what we lack or needs. Yeah. yeah. Um, so here's another one, uh, true or false. The more you praise a child for his intelligence, the more confident he'll be. Right. I mean, and, and again, this is false. This is one of those myths that, you know, commonly held misconception is that it's good to say to somebody, oh, you're so smart, you're a genius, you're brilliant, stuff like that. Um, when in fact, I mean, and again, I'm leaning heavily on the work that Carol Dweck and others in the, the positive psychology uh, and mindset areas have done demonstrating to my mind pretty conclusively that it's, it's actually damaging to praise someone for their intelligence, which people tend to think of as innate and fixed. And instead, what we ought to be doing is praising people for their, for their achievements and for their process. So to comment on a picture that a child is drawing, for example, and say, Oh my goodness, you're so talented. You're such an artist is actually harmful to their artistic ability. The, a better thing to say to the kid is, Wow, you worked really hard on that. I love what you did with the colors. That combination of the red and the blue and the yellow really makes sense in this picture. And what do you think you're going to do with the next one? So that you're focusing on the product and on the process, but not on some kind of innate quality of the person that's doing it. So again, it's, you know, it's about the, the doing, not about the yeah. being. I was just going to say that. That's very consistent with... That uh, that doing perspective. Yeah, is, I mean, yeah. a lot of a lot of what I write about is really there's a real strong connection between Carol Dweck's work and my own. Like I I really like what she talks about and, and how she talks about it and the the research findings that she's got in this in these areas. Yeah, that's very clear. It's very clear when you read your writings. Yeah, that's something that has been a strong influence on you. Um, so uh, here's another one. Some people are creative and some aren't. Yeah, and again, this is this is like these are sort of um, like really obvious kinds of uh, out there kinds of statements when you you know in, in our field, but it is it remains to be a commonly held misconception that some people are creative and some aren't, and it's absolutely false. Anybody can learn to be creative. And I love Bob Sternberg's, you know, 10 decisions for creativity, 10 ways you can decide for creativity. And so he's really emphasizing very strongly um, the, the doing rather than the being of creativity as well as intelligence. But, Absolutely. Yeah. He, he really does refer to it as kind of a creative spirit or attitude. Yeah. Yeah. Creativity is a choice. Right. Exactly. Okay. Um, how do you, you know, how do you define creativity, Donna? Like, how do you um, distinguish? Do you distinguish intelligence from creativity? Yeah, I mean, I think they're they're really connected. Obviously, um, 
I don't know if you know Dan Keating's work, but I love what he's done in creativity. He wrote a paper in 1980 that I don't think anybody's written anything that supersedes it for clarity. And he talks about, it's called The Four Faces of Creativity. Okay. And I think it was um, Gifted Child Quarterly that it was in or something. I'm pretty sure that's where it was. But what he talks about there, his four faces of creativity are content mastery. So you've got to know the stuff. You have to have knowledge with which to be creative. And then divergent thinking. And a lot of people think of creativity as divergent thinking. So thinking outside the box, um, it's um, sort of um, novel. Novelty. To a lot of people, novelty equals creativity. Right. Well, this divergent thinking aspect is an important it's, it's necessary, but really very much not sufficient to creativity. So another dimension that Keating talks about that a lot of people miss in creativity is the critical thinking component. So you have to, you know, have lots of divergent ideas, but then you have to decide which one to follow. And that's where the critical thinking comes in. You, you, you can't follow all your ideas. So... So critical thinking about which ideas are most practical. And then there's the communication skills where you translate sort of that content mastery, the divergent thinking, the critical thinking, you translate that into something useful for people. So if it's in the, the world of music, you are able to perform or write something that is musically um, valuable to other people. Sure, that sounds like a, a really good perspective and very uh, consistent with a lot of modern day theories of creativity as both novelty and usefulness. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Um, I'm going to put that article in our show notes. So. Yeah, yeah. If you could send it to me, that'd be great. Okay, I will. Yep. Um, highly emo intelligent people or children have more social and emotional problems than other kids. Right. And is I mean, true? I know. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, there, there are so many nuances and complexities to this, and you've done a lot of writing in this area. Um, so, you know, this is something that I'd enjoy a conversation with you about. But certainly, from, from my standpoint, looking at all the research on, because you know, my work has been in the area of gifted development. Right. So I, I predominantly worked with exceptionally capable kids and, you know, both in private practice and academic or research areas, it, it seems to me that the research is, and my, my experience is, that at a certain point, and maybe once you get to three standard deviations above the mean, like an IQ of 145 plus, something like that, once you get to that level, I think it does get harder for kids to relate to others. They are more different in their thinking processes than others. Uh -huh. So it's harder for them sort of categorically. Now, it, you know, people who have that level of, you know, IQ test score vary so tremendously. They're way more unlike each other than they are like each other. So I'm talking generalities here, but it's only once you get to that real extreme that you get, you know, so below that, 
a higher IQ is actually a plus factor socially, typically. And I mean, it depends a whole lot on what else is going on in the person's life. Depends a whole lot more on temperament than it does on IQ. It depends on like your social intelligence and your your intellectual quotient are like really different variables. They're they're very different. Um, so that so that we've all known people who are socially extremely competent but would not score very well on an IQ test and vice versa. Um, it's neither a high IQ it's neither an asset nor a detriment in terms of social ability. Um, so much of it seems to be contextual. You know, if you're if you're put in an environment where you're 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 uh, with classmates and individuals who are operating at the same speed as you, um, it seems like you could be more socially adept than you know, you could feel more awkward if you're in a situation where you feel out of place. So some of that might be environmental effects, not trait trait effects. I mean that's true. I think I think there's truth to that, but I would caution against I mean, because that seems to argue for pulling high IQ kids in together with each other. And it seems to me that there are a lot of costs to doing that too. So yeah, there can be some advantages, but um, well, you know, if we just take IQ out of, out of the equation, I mean, I don't know why um, why the center of the universe is IQ for so many people. I mean, there are so many traits that people vary on, so many characteristics. Yeah. I think there is something to be said for um, allowing people to f- kind of find their own, you know, yeah. uh, g- group, whatever it is. If it's interests, you know, based on interests, based on yeah. – inclinations, whatever it is, you know, we, we really can move just beyond the IQ thing. I don't know why in these dis- kinds of discussions, why, um, why IQ is treated as the sacred, you know, thing that is like, you know, yeah. it's just one trait, right? It's just one yeah. trait out of you, so many. You know why? You do, you know why? Of course you do. Cause it's, it's a thing that we have a test for. So we think, <laughs> That's true. we think we have a number on, we think we know about it. Like we've got this measurement and it seems to mean something. You know, we treat it like it means something. And so, whereas if we look at interest-based grouping, for example, like, wow, <laughs> there's no numbers there. Yeah, we really do like the we we we, we reify these things. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's true. Okay, um, here's another one. How about the faster a child completes tests and assignments, the smarter the child? Okay, and again, you know, it's funny. Going through this, it seems so obvious to me. It's sort of almost laughable in its simplicity and it's obvious. People believe these things, though. I know, but but the, the reason each of one of these, including that one, is in there is that that we've encountered so many circumstances where people really believe these things that a child who goes through his work slowly isn't as smart as the child who whips through it. And, you know, again, in my, my work with kids, what I see is some of the most deep, amazing, thoughtful kids, like they're really, really smart kids, are really very slow. And, and then you get other kids who do go through stuff very quickly, but it's only on a very superficial level. So, 
So again, I think there's a much bigger temperament factor in speed than there is anything else. Although that being said, of course, when you know something really well, you're likely to be a lot faster at it. So there's some connection there between speed and intelligence, but it's sure not the one-to-one correspondence that a lot of parents and teachers think it is. Right. It does. It does sound like you're including knowledge as um, part of intelligence, like expertise in specific domains. Absolutely. And I do as well. I do as well. I agree. Intelligent children don't have learning problems. Um, Well, my my goodness, you know, there's a book I'm going to recommend, Ungifted by Scott. (laughs) Oh, you're too kind. (laughs) (laughs) If you think, yeah, you know, it's it's really very false. And your book beautifully makes that point, like in a way I don't think it's ever been made before. Oh, bless you. Well, it's true that, that, yes, absolutely, there's... We all have a variable profile of intelligences. We all have strengths. We all have weaknesses. And even the very smartest person in one domain is going to have weaknesses in other domains. So, so smart kids definitely have learning problems. Not all smart kids have, or smart kids, not all kids who show up as smart at school. Right have an academic learning problem. A lot of them do. A lot of them don't. So they're, they're, um, they're not mutually exclusive, but nor are they, um, nor is it a one-to-one correspondence. Having a learning problem does not mean you are not smart. Right. There's, um, you know, there's a whole community called twice exceptionality. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that community. What do you think of that, uh, of that phrase? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's interesting. I Like with any category, I have some initial resistance. I have some problems with categorizing kids, gifted, learning disabled, attention deficit disorders, any of the categories tend to pigeonhole people and limit them. And I include twice exceptionality in that in that because it's a way of categorizing humans. Right. And twice exceptionality, I should say, is when you're simultaneously uh, gifted and learning disabled, to use two big loaded words. Exactly, exactly. So you have to meet the criteria for both of those categories to get the twice exceptional label. Right. And, I mean, it's, it's a tough call because certainly I have worked with children who required that kind of label in order to get the services that they needed. Sure. So I have a lot of respect for figuring out what's going right and what's going wrong, making sure it's it's labeled, if that labeling is necessary to get the appropriate programming. At the same time, I'm always concerned when I see people identifying with the label because a label, by definition, is going to be limiting. People are, I mean, one one way that I find useful to think about this stuff is to remember that people within any given category are way more different from each other within the category than they are from others outside the category. So there are way more intra-group differences than there are 
intergroup differences. Right. That's a really good point. Um, and you see that as well with discussions of sex differences and Absolutely. race differences, all that stuff. Precisely. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, it's a great, really great point. Um, you really, you want to smash the crystal ball. Am I right? Absolutely. <laughs> Let's smash it. Let's do it right now. <laughs> it's one of my things. Absolutely. I mean, that's the potential thing, the prediction thing. Yes. I mean, I've just seen it so damaging to so many, so many people, adults as well as children. Yes. Um, so do you think you can spoil a baby by being too available and responsive? No, no. I mean, uh, I would like to just end here this interview with a couple tips that we could give parents on how to develop a happily productive child. And I really like that phrase that you use because I think that that is really what parents really want to develop in their child. That's what they want to see. They want to see a happily productive kid, right? If, if you presented to a parent uh, an option of your child's going to be the highest standardized test taker in your class or is going to be a happily productive human being the rest of their life, I think I think most parents would choose the latter. What do you think? Yes, absolutely. They do choose the latter. Um, and, and sadly, I think what happens way too often is that they focus way too hard on the former, forgetting that the latter is their, you know, that, that happy productivity is their real objective. So one of the things I'm trying to say in my work these days, and the reason I call this book Beyond Intelligence, is yes, intelligence is terrific, but there are a whole lot of other competencies and abilities and and ways of being that go into living a happily productive life. So keep your eye, I'm saying to parents, on that ball, the ball of happy productivity, rather than on the ball of intelligence. So so to finish off, you know, in terms of my my uh, advice, you know, the hopes that I would have for parents to, to the things I would like them to take from my work is the need for balance in their kids' lives, the need for unstructured playtime, outdoor playtime, free time, daydreaming time, um, opportunities to figure out who they are in order to find out what they really want to develop. Oh, that's great. Uh, you, you have a couple quotes. Do you mind if I read back to you some quotes from your book that I loved? Oh, I, I would like that. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me if I'm misquoting you at all. Um, Parents can help children build their intelligence by remembering and reminding them that it develops over time with opportunities to learn and that there are many different ways of being intelligent. Do you, you know, just just telling your child these things and, yeah. and get increasing their awareness of this, you think it can help that child um, how make their own decisions in life in a productive, happy way. Absolutely. And it helps them value their own developing abilities too in a more well-rounded way than, than can happen sometimes. And here's another quote I really liked. The best way to raise children is to live the promise of possibility. By the way, I love the word possibility. I prefer possibility over potential. Yeah, me too. Yeah. By seeing ourselves and our places within society as works in progress, by appreciating the myriad prospects that can result from change, by embracing opportunities to learn, and perhaps most importantly, by teaching our children to do the same. Oh, that's good. 
I think that's your quote, right? <laughs> I like it. You and Joanne Foster. It's a. Uh, it's. I. Yeah. I wish. I just absolutely love it. Um, there are so many. You know, this is such an important book that you guys have written. You talk. There's so much more. I do recognize. I do recommend that my listeners list, buy your book and read it because you list lots of different specific things um, for parents that parents can do to help raise happily productive children. And I think. Um, did, were there any sort of last last thoughts you wanted to uh, to say for our listeners, many who are whom are parents, you know, and, yeah. and are hungry for this information? No, thank you. I, I think you've uh, you've looked at the important things and said the uh, so it helped me say what I wanted to say. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much, Don, for being on the show. Okay, my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. I hope you found this episode just as informative and thought provoking as I did. If you'd like to read the show notes for this episode or hear past episodes go to thepsychologypodcast.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better H-E-L-P dot com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.